Monday, October 19th, 2020. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Wherever you're listening to this podcast out in podcast land, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcast, whatever podcatcher of your choice you're listening to, thank you for listening today. I uh, hope everyone had a great week outside of podcast land. You know, I'm looking outside. It's a, it's a beautiful fall day. Leaves are starting to turn. Pumpkin pie, pumpkin spice, everything. It's also the season for flu shots. This year, more than ever, it is important to protect yourself, your family, and your community. VA is making it easier than ever before for eligible veterans to get their flu shot at either a VA medical facility or more than one of 60,000 in-network community locations. Eligible veterans can go to a nearby in-network retail pharmacy or urgent care center, show a government-issued ID card, and receive a standard or high-dose flu shot. While it might not be as fun as pumpkin spice, apple pie, pumpkin pie, sweet potato pie, mm, love sweet potato pie, But the flu vaccine not only helps reduce the chance that you will contract the flu, it can also reduce the severity and symptoms if you do become infected with the flu. So join the Department of Veterans Affairs in fighting the flu by getting your no-cost flu shot today. You can find a participating community partner by visiting www.va.gov and select Find a Location from the top menu. Received quite a few ratings and count them, count them, four reviews last week. Really appreciate that. Uh, first one is from Seymour1041, says five stars. Would recommend to all veterans. This is the first podcast I've listened to. I found it on the VA newsletter and I've recommended it to all my battle buddies. Thanks for this great representation of the diversity of veterans. Well, thank you, Seymour1041, for the review and letting others know that there's some good information in the VA Vet Resources newsletter. That does come out every week. Sometimes you got to check your promotions. Like I, I checked mine last week, and it was in the promotions tab of my of my Gmail uh, for whatever reason. Um, hopefully, they'll get that fixed. Uh, also glad to have you as an advocate for the podcast. Thank you for, for writing that review. Next one is from D12Leo. It says, five stars, life goes on. Sometimes we all need help. For so many years, we were told that we were weak if we needed help. Isn't it a trip? Isn't everything that we ever accomplished was as a team, though? From the first team as a child and the mother, father, caretaker, I have never heard of a child successfully rearing itself, have you? Why then do we fight so hard and have so many reservations in asking for help? We need you in life. It will go on. And this podcast is one of those resources. Our mentors would tell us to use every resource that we have. Regain your sense of purpose and take every hand that wants to pull or push you up. Life goes on, friends. Uh, D12 Leo, I think I get what you're saying. It if it definitely took a village to raise this man child right here. And absolutely take advantage of every resource that is looking to push you into a better version of yourself. Uh, and we do care and we, and we do need to keep fighting. 
I think D12 Leo was listening to some of our previous episodes with Aaron Quinones or Erica Land, where the focus was fighting and winning against veteran suicide. Uh, D12 Leo, thank you for the five-star rating and for calling out Born the Battle as a resource for fellow veterans. Really appreciate that. Okay, next review is from Vets on Radio. It says, five stars, excellent podcast. Connection is key. Tanner connects with his guests personally and professionally. Episode 212 was deeply moving as a Marine Corps veteran, Aaron Quinones, gives a personal account of his struggles after returning home from war. Vets on Radio, thank you for the review. Aaron's interview, I can say, is one where my guests really, really opened up. And every veteran can take away something from his very deep story. Uh, Vets on Radios, I really appreciate the kind words. And thank you for sharing with others how much Aaron's story touched you. Thank you very much. Appreciate that. Okay, last one is from Lenny Agui. Agui? Lenny Aggie. I'm thinking maybe it was supposed to be Aguilar, but ran out of characters says five stars says love your podcast i've been listening to your podcast for a couple of months now and truly been enjoying listening to the personal stories of various stories most recently i was very touched by how erica started using writing poetry to heal herself and others her poetry is relatable to us veterans i also enjoyed listening to aaron's story and learning about operation pop smoke that absolutely thank you and keep up the good work Lenny Aggie, I, I will. It seems like a lot of you really liked episodes 212 and 213. And when I can, I'll focus more on their subjects and like them, examples of how veterans persevered through that very difficult subject of veteran suicide. Appreciate the kind words, and I'll continue to bring you more episodes as long as I keep getting the opportunity to host this show and keep bringing them to you. So really, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for the review. Again, thank you for all those who rated and reviewed the podcast in the lifetime of this podcast, and, and especially within the last week. Like I've said before, it jumps us up in the algorithms and helps get this podcast recommended to more veterans and civilians alike. So really appreciate the support that you guys have put forth, especially in the past week. Okay, time for news releases. We got four this week. We'll start with what I think is the biggest one. The U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs announced recently the reestablishment of in-person benefits and services in select locations throughout the country. Currently, there are 11 regional offices open to the public and more are expected to reopen in the coming weeks as reopening phases will vary by regional office and local conditions. The regional offices will continue adherence to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention Guidelines, which includes the use of social distancing, face coverings, hand sanitizer, and asking sick individuals to stay at home. In addition, veterans can continue to interact with the Veterans Benefits Administration virtually for accessing benefits information online or when filing a claim online. For claim-specific questions, you can also call 1-800-827-1000. To check the availability of a regional office near you, you can visit www.benefits.va.gov forward slash benefits forward slash offices dot ASP. Again, this isn't local VA medical facilities. This is a news release that is talking about in-person regional benefits offices for you know the GI Bill, home loan, etc. Just benefits, benefits. You can also go to benefits.va.gov forward slash benefits if you want to read more about the Veteran Benefits Administration's response to COVID-19. Okay, the second one says, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently announced it awarded a contract on October 1st to TriWest Healthcare Alliance to serve as a third-party administrator 
to manage Region 5 of its community care network, which includes all of Alaska. The community care network is the department's direct link with community providers to ensure VA provides the right care at the right time to veterans. Basically, when you request and get approved for local community care based on the Mission Act requirements, TriWest Healthcare Alliance will be the ones that you'll be dealing with. They used to have the contract in my area here in D.C. Uh, when I went and accessed community care for physical therapy. Uh, previously, regions 1, 2, and 3 of VA's community care network were awarded to Optum Public Sector Solutions Incorporated, part of United Health Group Incorporated, on December 28, 2018, and Region 4 was awarded to TriWest August 6, 2019. To learn more about community care, visit va.gov forward slash community care. There you can find out more about providers and what region you are in and how to qualify for local community care in your area. Okay, the third one says, the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs recently dedicated a new national cemetery in Laramie County, Wyoming. VA Secretary Robert Wilkie unveiled the dedication plaque for the Cheyenne National Cemetery, the first national cemetery in the state. Construction of the first phase of the cemetery provides space for more than 1,600 interments, including caskets, in-ground burial, cremains, uh, columbarius space for uh, cremains, and a memorial wall. At full capacity, the cemetery will be able to accommodate just over 7,000 interments. Before Cheyenne, the closest burial option was Fort Logan National Cemetery, located 114 miles away in Denver, Colorado. The only in-state veteran cemetery is Oregon Trails State Veteran Cemetery, run by the state of Wyoming, located 176 miles away in Evansville. Cheyenne National Cemetery is the sixth to open under the VA's Rural Initiative Program, which provides burial access for veterans in rural areas not currently served by a national cemetery within the state or VA-grant-funded state cemetery. Since 2014, VA has dedicated rural cemeteries in Idaho, Maine, Montana, North Dakota, Wisconsin, and now Wyoming, with cemeteries in Nevada and Utah currently under construction or planned. For more information, you can contact the Fort Logan National Cemetery Director, Kevin Johnson, at 303-761-0117. For more information on VA burial benefits or to apply for burial benefits in advance of need, visit the National Cemetery Administration website at cem.va.gov or call 1-800-535-1117. Photos and videos of the dedication can also be found on the National Cemetery Administration's Facebook page. Just type in National Cemetery Administration, you'll find it. Okay, and last one says, The Federal Electronic Health Record Modernization Program Office recently announced the Department of Veterans Affairs, Department of Defense, and the Department of Homeland Security's U.S. Coast Guard expanded their joint health information exchange network with the private sector after connecting with the Commonwealth Health Alliance. Commonwealth brings a nationwide network of more than 15,000 hospitals and clinics to the 46,000 community partners already part of the Joint Health Information Exchange. Launched earlier this year, the Joint Health Information Exchange is a modernized health data sharing capability that enhances the ability of VA, DOD, and the U.S. Coast Guard to quickly and securely share electronic health record data with participating community health care providers. Through the Joint Health Information Exchange, providers may access information on the patient's prescriptions, allergies, illnesses, lab and radiology results, immunizations, past medical procedures, and medical notes. 
The Joint Health Information Exchange integration with the Commonwealth Network of Providers is part of the overarching effort with VA, DOD, Coast Guard to modernize and deploy a single common federal electronic health record. By implementing the same health record, VA, DOD, and the Coast Guard can better document care from the time individuals enter the military through their care as veterans, including care they may receive in the private sector. Now, the Joint Health Information Exchange does honor patient consent. Health records of patients who opt out of sharing will not be exchanged through the Joint Information Health Exchange. However, the news release doesn't tell you how to opt out. I did do some legwork for you, though, and it's at va.gov forward slash VHIE. There you can find the link to managing your sharing options on the right-hand side of the page. Although I don't know why you wouldn't want your health history more accessible to current doctors treating you. Uh, seems like a good thing. All right. Now, this week's guest is an Air Force veteran who had no idea what he was going to do in his post-military life, where in his military life, he was a navigator for surveillance aircraft. He has since become the founder of a nonprofit that serves other nonprofits and is the director of Heroes Linked, which is another nonprofit that gives veterans a chance to network with mentors as they navigate their post-military careers. I'd say for an airman that had no idea, he's done pretty well, and he's become a solid advocate for the veteran community. He is Air Force veteran David Tenenbaum. Enjoy. I don't hear anything uh, bad on your on your end. Okay, just my voice. That's the only thing that I hear that's bad. <laughs> no, you sound great, man. Uh, how you doing? You know, I, I was I was a little behind today, but I was able to catch up uh, with a little help from Clint Mansell and uh, the Requiem for a Dream soundtrack. That always gets me in the mood to get work done. Nice. I uh, I take actually a little bit between Amp, Monster, Red Bull, and that gets me in the mood for a lot of things. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, I'm I'm glad we finally got a chance to link up, man. Uh, glad that we finally got a chance chance to to get this time to talk. I think last time I saw you was at the Vetties, right? Was it? Yeah, actually, you're right. Absolutely, in January. Yep. Really appreciate the invite. As I heard about the Vetties, you know, I always heard about the Vetties being in DC, but I didn't know what they were all about. Um, it's put on by the Academy of the United States Veterans, and to me, from when you when you invited me and I went, it seemed to me like it's a a Veteran Academy Award for nonprofits that support the veteran community. Is that you think that is that accurate? I, I think that's extremely accurate. I think uh, Army Veteran Asal Ravandi, who who put AUSV together and the Vetties, I think she would uh, she would yelp you five out of five on that one for sure, man. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Um, and we're going to get into that in a bit, but uh, being that you're the nonprofit, you're the director of a nonprofit, Heroes Linked. I mean, you guys were nominated in one uh, for for which category again? And, I, and the reason I ask about which category, I went to look on their website, and they don't have the winners on the site. They still have the fourth annual winners up. Yeah, and we were super lucky. You know, Heroes Linked won the Vetti for the employment category, and well, I think there's about ten different categories. Uh, this year, and it seems like each year, the, I think they change the the categories and the focus of the vetties. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. We've been looking to to share that as widely as possible with our community, as like a sense of validation of our work. And uh, regrettably, it seems like it's not 
it's not up on a site anymore. Uh, I think this year was a hard year for for many of us, in, including for AUSV. Sure. Uh, we're thankful to you know to Nick Palmashano of Ranger Up for having sponsored it. It was a lovely event in DC. Truly glad you know we were able to connect face to face. Yeah. Um, but I think uh, I think we'd like we'd we'd love to share the good work that the veteran community is doing, and if, and if we're part of that, we're we're grateful for it. No, it was it was a great event. Uh, had a great time. Really appreciated the invite. And we'll get in we'll get into Heroes LinkedIn a bit. But first, I want to go back um, to the beginning, David. I want to go back to the beginning. Um, I I saw your bachelor's is from UC San Diego. Are you originally from California? I am. I'm absolutely a, a California boy. And granted, I wasn't born here, but got here as quickly as I could. I was actually <laughs> born in uh, born in the East Coast. Uh, Born on the East Coast to to two immigrant parents, my father from Poland uh, and my mother from Morocco, and so pretty fascinating relationship that they met in Michigan of all places. I'm not even sure how good their English was, literally, and so uh, met in Michigan. I I was born there, but came out to California when I was two years old and been here ever since. Hold on, wait. Your mom's from Morocco. Have we talked about this? I don't think so. You know, I, my I my my wife's mother is from Morocco. Oh wow! Yeah, my my wife's uh, my my wife is an army brat, and uh, her dad was stationed in Morocco for a year or two. Met met his, you know, met her mom, and and yeah, my, my so yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't know if we had discussed that before. I don't think so. Yeah, but that's that's fascinating. I there's only so many like other Moroccans I get to meet. Yeah, number one, and like you know, my my parents are you know they're diverse like. You know, my father being born in Poland, going through the Holocaust, and he was several years my mother's senior, uh, and then my mother having her own like unique migration route from Morocco, Casablanca, or Casablanca, Morocco, and then Paris, and then Montreal, and then Michigan, and the U.S. and the U.S. And so they they both had this really unique route of getting here. Yeah, and I I still think it's extraordinary how they met, that they met, and then that. Thankfully, they they moved west. You know that they had manifest <laughs> destiny already in their blood. So, I think it's super interesting. That's super interesting. I didn't know. And your dad, you said your dad survived the Holocaust. Absolutely. He, you know, said he's he's several years my mother's senior, or was several years my mother's senior, and he was about thirteen, I think, or fourteen when he went in when he was um, part of the Holocaust when he was interned in the in the camps. And it wow. was, of course, it was our whole family. And you know, thank God, thank God, uh, it was actually U.S. forces that that liberated his camp uh, in Munich. Yeah. And uh, it, through his own like the trials and tribulations, he stayed briefly in Germany. Not, of course, according to his own desires, but that eventually led him to Canada as well, and then the U.S. I believe. And so he's had a he had a hell of a trip uh, fighting for his freedom, but. It's actually his story that has had an enormous impact on my life, even though he's been absent. Like he, um, he killed himself. He he committed suicide when I was just two years old. But oh my gosh, I've known my entire life about his story, and um, I know that it was the um, you know the, the U.S. Forty Second Infantry Division and the Forty Fifth Infantry Division that liberated his camp, uh, and I know about how our at times our our foreign diplomacy and us doing the right thing means 
truly saving lives and, and creating future generations. So I've kind of always been aware that there is a, a right and a wrong. And I've kind of always been aware that sometimes it takes people doing the right thing to to ensure it's the right thing. Sure. No, absolutely. I think it's um, it's so important to never forget where you come from. And I really appreciate that you knew that, you know, you, you're, you know, your family's history and that journey. That's really cool, man. Yeah. Thank you. It means, that means a lot. And I appreciate that, you know, both on the, like the mental health awareness front, it's something obviously we, we veterans are addressing. It's something VA is addressing and it's something our culture is now addressing. And, and I dig what you're saying, man, which is you know, to what, to what extent do we know our own, our own history, our family history and our nation's history and what, what governments have done. And so it, it only helps us to understand that and then you know, choose the best path moving forward. Yeah, man. Never lose that. Never, never lose uh, where you come from. Absolutely. Um, well, I want to start with the same question every veteran gets here on Born the Battle. Where and when did you decide that military service was going to be the next step in your life? Ooh, dessert. Starting off with something sweet and delicious first. All right. Um <laughs> So I, uh, I think I'll say this, if we're going to go back, I think the first time it became obvious to me was I was in high school. It was 91 and the end of 91, I believe. And, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait mm. and I didn't know anything whatsoever about what had happened between Iraq and Iran and Kuwait and a 10-year war. I had no clue. Uh, oh, Google, how you've changed the world in our, in our, in our knowledge. But <laughs> I didn't know anything except for the fact that as the media presented it accurately, that here is a, uh, a wayward leader invading a smaller country that didn't ask to be invaded and is essentially is pilfering and looting their country. And I thought, why is this, why are we allowing this to happen? And again, on the, on the heels of what happened to my father in Europe and, and World War II and access for the Allies, I thought, why is this happening again where, as a world, wayward leaders can can do harm to others? Yeah. And I think I realized, I remember I was looking at like a blockbuster video and asking my older brother, who's always been like, he was like a valedictorian. He went on to like UCLA and then like Harvard, extremely smart man. Wow. And uh, I remember asking like, why... Why would there be any difficulty or barrier? What would be stopping anyone from simply stopping Saddam Hussein? And I didn't realize that one of the mechanisms to do that was the U.S. military. And so I think I kind of had a strong inkling that the, the, path, the path to doing right on a global scale, the path to ensuring the well-being of others, the path to ensuring that uh, people aren't harmed, ironically, is through through the military when, when leaders, like I said, become rogue. Um, and, and that, you know, I, I can't say that without, again, referencing my, my father and his history yeah. and World War II. And so I think I had an idea in, in high school. And then I think that rapidly manifested when I went to university and when Slobodan Milosevic um, and Yugoslavia and Serbs and, and, the some more acts of genocide and Bosnians, and, Bosnians, and, exactly. Thank you. That's 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 my father's side of my history. Oh wow! I came from uh, what's now Croatia. Oh wow! But we but we came in World War at, right before World War One kicked off. It was still the Austria-Hungarian Empire, 
that's the side of my history. So you're you're speaking my side now. It's interesting. That's just super interesting. And your and your family was fortunate to leave before World War Two. Yeah, he was a sergeant in the Austrian-Hungarian Empire, and if you know the history of World War One, that that empire got completely destroyed. And he was a sergeant in that military, and he left a year before it kicked off. Oh my. <laughs> The Iska family has perfect timing, I hope, in that case. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> so. <laughs> so so Slobodan Milosevic, you you were you were paying attention to that whole region at that time. Yeah. You know, I'm at that point, you know, I'm, I'm a university student, like you said, at UC San Diego. I'm an undergrad, um, enjoying beautiful La Jolla and enjoying, you know, academic growth, you know, and then at the exact same time, I'm literally seeing headlines about trains yet again in Europe, taking people to death camps. And it just kept, you know, um, it just kept gnawing at my brain. Why, why does this happen? Like, you know, at the same time that we purport to be a world leader, world's largest economy, uh, incredibly capable, incredibly knowledgeable country, why do some of the most basic violations of human rights still occur worldwide? And what is the mechanism to to prevent that, it started ticking at me and gnawing at me, and I thought, here it is again. It happened just a few years ago with with Kuwait. It's happening again in in Europe, uh, yeah. regardless of whether it's Jews or not, or gypsies or those seeking political asylum. It's happening again where people of a different religion, ethnicity, culture, language, history, identity, social status are being murdered, and yeah. that. It literally doesn't it, it it doesn't sit well with me, and I and I can't think of it any other greater cause in my life than to to seek to terminate that. Um, I, I think I'll just say this. I mean, this just just to clarify like the whole crux. I think or the whole basis for my being. I feel like when people said like you know what's your north star or what's your mission or what's your you know reason to be, I, I I've told myself for years that I'm born on the fourth of July. I'm my father's last child. Yeah. So U.S. forces liberated my father from a camp. Uh, and I feel like, especially since my older brothers are incredibly accomplished, I feel like I was like the, hey, let's let's generate one more product and let's assign that product to ensuring like what was provided to him. Let's Let's have that product's mission be returning the favor or passing it along or ensuring what was provided for him will be provided to others. And so hmm. I, I pray for the day when I can, when I can say, okay, I served in the army briefly. I served in the air force for six years. I applied to the CIA twice. I applied to Los Angeles Sheriff's department that, okay, I can, I can pursue the freedom and well-being of others in a more vigorous way. So I think that's, that's where it all stems from. And if that's my quote, why for serving, I think that's the, the single greatest cause. Got you. So your family history coupled with uh, seeing the occupation in Kuwait, seeing what was going on in Yugoslavia in the mid-90s uh, with Slobodan Milosevic. Um, so you joined in 2001, a month before September 11th. Yeah, exactly. I joined the, yeah, I joined the Air Force in, <laughs> in 2001. Wow. You talk about timing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I joined the Air Force in 2001. We were literally at officer training school. Uh, when 9-11 happened, things changed immediately and in a very dramatic, profound way. What was that day like for you? I remember being in our room, being in our our training room with our flight, with our group of about 15 of us, 
And I remember immediately, like, you know, our flight training officer coming to the room saying, hey, something's happened. Here it is on the news. Stay, you know, kind of like stand by. This is all unprecedented times for all of us. Uh, stand by. We're immediately going on like lockdown. I think we had, um, before we had FP con levels, force protection con levels, I think we actually had def uh, DEF con levels, I thought, in 2000. We called it that. Um, sure. And uh, it, it, it was an immediate sensation of of how significant and the gravity of, gravity of all and seeing our own leaders, our flight training officers, the captains, the majors, lieutenant colonels, seeing their concern and understanding how significant it was, that was immediately passed on to us. And I think we knew... I think we knew that our time in the military wouldn't be as, as anything that was before. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, you almost got to see what was behind the curtain of training a little bit. Right. I bet. Right. We prepare and train for war. And I think this was a case where we could say, Hey, literally we had, you know, we had, we had, uh, active duty enlisted with us at OTS. And I remember we had several PJs, several pararescue men. And it was the first time the Air Force was uh, created a new career track, the uh, the Crow, the Combat Rescue Officer, where essentially it was the officers for the PJ community, and we had two super super badass operators. I mean, these guys had their rack was was crazy pants, like their biceps could you know crush walnuts. Like these guys were just these guys were <laughs> alphas, and and as a good Jewish boy, you know from LA, I wouldn't say I was intimidated, but you could say I was intimidated, and uh, <laughs> I remember those guys went immediately into like operator mode, like get me the hell out of OTS, get me the hell out of Alabama, put me back in the fight coach. Like they're jump qualified, their weapons qualified, you know, six months earlier, they're probably running missions worldwide anyway. Yeah. So I remember seeing their eagerness to get out into the field when I didn't even know what the field was. I'm like, where are you going to go? Like, where is there to so go? They, right now? These were, these were Mustangs that were, go that were going for OCS that had previously been enlisted. Is that is that what they're called the Marines? Um, enlisted yeah. officers? Yeah, we call them Mustangs. Ah, um, we just call them wise people in the Air Force. We call them professional golfers, oh. actually. <laughs> uh, we, no, uh, uh, yeah, exactly. They were active duty enlisted folks who who put in their package, got selected, and then you know they were in your class. Exactly, and they're about fifty percent of our class. You know, some of us were brand new college really? graduates, and then yeah, exactly fifty percent or so were were for Mustangs, so to speak. Ah, I didn't know that that was that high. That's awesome. So, um, okay. So your LinkedIn says that you were, uh, an aircraft instructor navigator for surveillance and reconnaissance aircraft. Yes. One, one, which aircraft are we talking U2s or unmanned? Unmanned. We, you know, that was my very polite way of saying I was a navigator on a, what's commonly referred to as a spy plane. Was it U2s or it was, uh, would they, would they run an SR-71s at that point, were they? Oh, correct. The, the SR-71s had been retired, although that would have been a joy to send that one at Mach 3. Oh, my gosh. But yeah. uh, uh, we we were in the uh, the unknown. Uh, our aircraft is the is literally the black sheep of of the Air Force. It's got a it's got a long black nose. It's the rivet joint. No one knows about it. Uh, even in the Air Force, I would tell people that I flew the as a navigator on the RC-135 and they'd say, oh yeah, we take gas all the time from the KC-135. I'm like, no, RC-135, reconnaissance aircraft. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> we take gas from you guys all the time. And you're like, no, stop it. This, this is a complete, <laughs> interesting. Okay, RC-135, uh, who makes that? Uh, Boeing. 
it's a Boeing. Okay. It's a heavily modified uh, 707 esque airframe. Interestingly enough, some of our some of our aircraft were literally converted. I think initially some of our aircraft, like the whole 707 fleet, like I think the AWACS, uh, J Stars, and the Rivet Joint, some of them were converted commercial airliners uh, okay. as 707 platforms. And then, of course, once they got to the Air Force, we we modified them like mad, new engines, glass cockpits. In our case, we installed literally hundreds of antennas, you know, uh, thousands and thousands of pounds worth of servers, m- literally miles of of ethernet line i mean we had linguists in the back yep. who were listening to multiple things and uh multiple frequencies and it it's the aircraft was is a master of detecting anything in the electronic spectrum understanding it uh whether it's person to person communication whether it's vehicle to vehicle aircraft to aircraft none of it, none of this of course is is classified what i'm saying absolutely none of it um yeah, it's all that, that's all on class. I'm pretty sure. Exactly. Yeah. So the but, ca- the capabilities is on is on class. You know, but I'm pretty sure how you guys go about your business department might be classified. But, right. Um, right. Yeah, all that's on class. So you were a goose to a recon maverick, <laughs> um, <laughs> in a 707, um, deployed to Iraq, Afghanistan, Qatar, Pacific, and support operation. Operations Enduring in Iraqi Freedom. Yes. Uh, also serving as a foreign area officer with demonstrated French and Hebrew proficiency. Okay. Uh, David, best bet. what is your best recon mission or best day as a foreign area officer? We were flying missions, exactly as you said, in support of Enduring Freedom and Iraqi Freedom. And we only have about 13 rivet joint uh, aircraft in the entire Air Force. And so they were flying constantly. Oh, wow. And... You know, we flew 12 hour sorties every, you know, quite frequently. There's only a few crews at a time out there. You know, one of the biggest things that was happening in country, especially for us as a, as a reconnaissance platform was we would hear everything from our own forces, from allied forces, and then from the enemy. And we would hear frequently about ticks, you know, troops in contact. And Mm. of course, everyone's heart immediately goes out to um, folks on the ground who are in a firefight and how can we push resources to them, whether it's an A-10, whether it's a 15E, you know, whether it's someone doing a show of force or, or laying down a fire or close air support, whether it's um, uh, an AC-130 gunship. You know, we didn't have any offensive capabilities, but we could, like I said, process information and intel uh, immediately. And Are you are, are you always with an escort with we those were, planes? We were not. We you know, Our model was what uh, unarmed, alone, and, and unafraid. And so wow. we were alone, but we also would probably much know, we would know before anyone else, if anything was sent our way, let's just say that. Gotcha. We Very should good. know. Very good. We should know that. But, you know, uh, one of our missions, we, you know, it was just like any other day we were in our operating area. It was quite active on, on the ground. And essentially our linguists caught a few things that seemed out of the ordinary and they heard some significant chatter. They processed it. They translated it. They understood its significance. We coordinated with JSTARS to get some other um, intel about what those vehicles uh, and locations might be. We passed it to, I think, uh, F-16 with Lantern, who did a, a low run and got them on their, on their cameras to see what was going on. We, we coordinated with some JTACs. Uh, and then eventually, we all confirmed it all worked out. 
um, that there was bad people doing bad things. And they literally, you know, within minutes, I think, put bombs on, on bad people. And that, wow. as simple as it sounds, something that we should be doing presumably every day in a war, uh, in, a, in war uh, that led to us receiving like the best reconnaissance crew or best reconnaissance mission uh, Air Force wide for the year. So yeah. we received like the Air Force Jerome O'Malley reconnaissance mission of the year. And to that, uh, our, our AC was a pretty experienced, our aircraft commander was a pretty experienced aircraft commander. And even though even in the cockpit, we could listen to multiple frequencies and we could hear guys on the ground. We could, we had, of course, immediate comms with our own, with our own aircraft inside the aircraft. Uh, we could plug into the aircraft and, and play music. And that's when he said, Hey, Nav, uh, yeah, go to my, I think it was an iPod at the time, go to my iPod and play Flight of the Valkyrie. And that was kind of hysterical knowing that the 16E as we, or 16, excuse me, literally says, you know, weapons hot, cleared hot, you know, sort of thing as, as Wagner plays in the background on our headphones. So we knew that was a pretty day for us. Absolutely. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, that sounds like a pretty good day. Um, it's pretty, it's gotta be nice to, 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 to actually, see the fruits of the labor that you guys are, what you guys are doing almost immediately. Yeah. Look, you know, we're in the air force. We're a bunch of technical, a bunch of tech guys, you know, essentially our training differs from you Marines dramatically. You know, we don't have six months of the basic school for officers. We don't go through school of infantry. We don't spend months upon months with, with weapons and tactics and, you know, two forties and two forty nines and the M fours and M 16s. And, you know, we're, we're, a you know, true to form. We're a little bit more of a cerebral branch. Sorry, fellow devil dogs, but we are. <laughs> and we don't <laughs> kick down doors. We don't give each other the squeeze on the shoulder before, you know, breaching, breaching, uh, an enemy, an enemy facility and, and clearing corners and more, uh, you know, our work, our office is at 30,000 feet and moving at 500, 600 miles per hour, you know, 600 or six miles a minute, seven miles a minute, eight miles a minute, trying to, to analyze data and make sure that goes to the right people. So absolutely seeing, seeing us complete our mission and knowing that it's for the welfare of the country of Afghanistan or for the welfare of our own troops. That's a, that's a good day for us. Yeah. And then just, like I said, it's not Intel that you collected and, and, you know, it was acted on maybe a day or two later. It was something that you guys like immediately saw results from. That's yes, pretty cool. Absolutely. So while you were in either give me a, a best friend or your greatest mentor. Fascinating question. I really like that's that's interesting. Going back in time, who who was a mentor officially or unofficially? Can I say names? Can I mention? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. So so Dimitri, this one's for you, buddy. Uh, Dimitri was one of the most unique dudes I I I had met at Nav School. Who tall kid, also from LA, super brainiac. Didn't get to spend much time with him. Saw him at the O Club on Friday nights when we play uh, crud. Uh, or, or drink beers, knew of him, knew he was an upper upperclassman, but I never talked to him because he was an upperclassman. Uh, sure. And I remember he got assigned to Offit for the rivet joint, and then I got assigned to Offit. And uh, I didn't know, but we would eventually be in the same flight. We would eventually become roommates. We would eventually become best of friends. We would eventually deploy together, and he would be... Uh, he... He would be my boss of sorts, but I, I bring him up because 
he, although he was an electronic warfare officer and he was part of the mission crew of the aircraft, that man, that man was, he, he did things both in the Air Force and outside the Air Force that I didn't even know that we could do. And so he was the one who actually said, hey, I speak Russian. Uh, I've tested on the defense language proficiency test. How can I leverage that to become a foreign area officer? You know, I didn't, I didn't know we could do that. He ex- opened my mind to what other opportunities there were within the Air Force that we could do simultaneously. And then personally, he was one of the first guys that started investing in realty that I knew of in Omaha. Um, at the same time we were deploying, he's like, oh yeah, I have a fourplex that, you know, that I own in Omaha. I'm like, what? Like, how do you, how do you do this? And he was the first guy that went from like Beamer to Beamer to, you know, from one nice Beamer to another nice Beamer. So he had his personal life and his financial success and his professional life in uniform quite together. And he was traveling and he, he carried himself quite well. And he ultimately was incredibly happy and had an excellent sense of humor and, he was my unknowing mentor in the sense of this is as well-rounded as you can be in an organization that is a DOD organization or a military organization, but he's pretty much the, one of the best examples of um, what you can be at the same time. Very good. Very good. Okay. So you were in for over a little over six years. Why, when did you decide that it was time for you to, move on from the military to get out? Um, great question. We had a riff, you know, we had a reduction in force. The Air Force was downsizing in personnel. And initially the Air Force started in involuntary separation for a lot of junior folks. And then they moved from involuntary separation to voluntary separation also for, for enlisted junior folks. And then they offered voluntary separation for officers with pay. And my, mm. like any other uh, navigator, we had a we had a six year commitment after we were we received our wings, which is roughly about an eight year commitment in total. And so, gotcha. I think I had another year or so before I was eligible to to leave. And then they offered this program, and I said, "Wait a sec, I could leave now and still receive them the same amount of pay." And I foolishly. Uh, I foolishly took the opportunity and I say foolishly because I was becoming a little bit impatient. Um, I had become an instructor navigator. I was like one of the, I volunteered to be one of the highest deployed members of our squadron. I was single with no dependents. I shut down my apartment. I moved everything into storage. I wanted to be as air force as I possibly could be. Mm. I took flight, flight opportunities. I took ground opportunities. I, I was in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Qatar. I, I took everything I possibly could to to be the best um, squadron member aviator I could. And that's why I also tested proficient, like I said, for foreign languages and got the foreign area officer. I got my master's, like a 4.0. Like I was doing everything I possibly could to propel my Air Force career. And I started studying Arabic because I wanted to be this Arabic, um, Arabic, Hebrew, French proficient linguist with a top secret clearance in Intel to kind of groom myself for next steps. And I became a little bit impatient when they offered the opportunity. I took it and I left and I had no, I had no transition plan. I didn't know where I was going to go. I had no goals, no mission. I had absolutely nothing. So I, I left foolishly when I should have probably stayed in and put in the 20. And that, that 
that is a slight regret there for sure. Wow. So you were you were ready to be career Air Force and then saw the money, took the money with no forward thought whatsoever. Yeah. You know, we we super that's super interesting. <laughs> By super interesting, you mean super foolish. I can interpret that. No, I got it. <laughs> no, that's super interesting. I, I don't think I've of all the interviews I've uh you know, maybe maybe they haven't been as candid, but nobody has openly admitted, yeah, I just I saw money to get out, I took it and I didn't think about the next step whatsoever. Yeah. Super interesting. I I would say, you know, there was there was obviously some some lead up to that decision like uh, I think it was actually Dimitri. I think uh, it was Dimitri who mentioned it. I think Dimitri put in for it as well. There's a few of us. You know, there are only two squadrons that fly our aircraft, period. 13 aircraft, two squadrons, and all we do is we rotate. It's either the 343rd or the 38th. And, and to all the guys flying the line and gals flying the line, all the airmen flying in the line, you know, the mission is pretty extraordinary, And but it, it, it can be tiring. And I'm not saying I was tired by any means, but it it, it can be... Hey, where do we go from here? And the rivet joint community is small, and and not everyone has afforded the chance to to spread their wings in the Air Force and try other bases, try other things. And so, I think for a little bit of time, it was hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. About okay, we're already in our nation's longest war. We've already been to Qatar three, four, five, six times. And look, I get it. I, I, we were in the country club. Guys were stop lost. Guys were in the army. Guys from the Marines who did two, three, four, five, six, seven pumps who were doing it for a year, a year plus, who missed their child's birth, who missed their, you know, their, their, their anniversaries with their, their husband or wife. You know, I get it. I know exactly what I'm saying, which is we had it nice in the Air Force. I mean, our base had a pool and ice cream for God's sake. Like there's nothing to complain about. Uh, but when the opportunity, but there was a grind, but there was definitely a grind 12 hour days in a, in a, in a flight on or 12 hour missions, um, you were, it sounds like you were in the middle of your career. So it was right in the middle of the grind. And it sounds like that opportunity to get out with the money came up at just the right time. Yeah. And, and I, and I assumed absolutely. And I think it's absolutely correct. And I assumed that the success I was, that I recently had in the air force. And again, this is on the heels of, I just completed my professional schooling squadron officer school in the air force. I just finished my master's. I just, you know, like I said, everything was lined up. I just got my private pilot license. Like everything was lined up perfectly. And I thought, oh, I don't know where I'll go next, but I know I would presumably be a good candidate for any, you know, defense-related or any Fortune 500 company. I mean, how could I not be? And uh, little did I realize that uh, it would take me quite some time to realize how to leverage my military experience into being a marketable commercial uh, or corporate America uh, applicant. So that was really, a, yeah, that was a very painful process for me. What was it like? Because I'm now you got out in 07, and if I remember right, the economy was actually really good then. It was right before the Great Recession, right? Exactly. Exactly. So you said it was a rough transition, though. Um, what was it like getting out at that time? And, and how did you eventually learn to leverage your military experience to land that first gig? So I guess the the big the big picture was, you know, I said so I just came off success. I felt like I was supposed to go success to success. And what I found was almost immediately, although we wore ribbons on our chest and although we, we understood each other's success and how talented we were, when I got out, I realized there was a chasm, an absolute chasm between who I was in uniform and who I was as a civilian or as a veteran. 
and almost nothing that I was or had really meant anything to anyone. Uh, and, I, and I'm not trying to downplay that or, or say, woe is me, woe is me, or that's the plight that we veterans have when we transition. But again, it's really hard to say, oh, I completed squadron officer school in 30 days. Oh, I did. I was the highest deployed member of my, of my squadron. Oh, uh, I was an instructor navigator. Oh, I won reconnaissance crew of the year. That, those terms don't even mean anything outside the Air Force, even to the other branches. And so um, when I got out, uh, essentially, almost immediately after getting out, I, I was involved with uh, someone who was in the Air Force. It was a mill-mill relationship. And I joined her. She was still in. She was still serving. I joined her in in Florida and being somewhat intimidated by the job search and where I'd go and what I would do, I actually launched my own company and sunk a hundred grand into it through all caution to the wind, uh, launched a business, a brick and mortar business with a, that provided a service and grew that into 2008, 2009 during the Great Recession and then rapidly realized uh, being in central Florida during the Great Recession uh, with my business was not the best decision for me. <laughs> mm, what business was it? So I launched Ben Jacob Designs. It's to honor my father, Ben in Hebrew, meaning son of, and Jacob, my father's uh, my father's name. He changed it when he came to America. But uh, son of Jacob Designs, I, I kind of modeled, modeled that name after a few other similar names in the industry. And, and Ben Jacob Designs, despite the very confusing name to most, I wasn't a graphic designer. I wasn't an architect. It was a it was an off road motorcycle company that provided um, rentals for re- for race and recreational use, which was uh, quite unique in the country. Almost no one was doing that. But then the Great Recession hit, and the Great Recession hit, and I said, "What am I doing in Florida? Literally playing in the dirt, driving all around the the state, and then along the East Coast, hauling ten to thirteen motorcycles, playing in the dirt." Uh, when I'm, you know, putting in 12, 14, 16 hour days, wrenching on the bikes, coordinating, you know, rentals, bookings, equipment, uh, driving all around the state. And then, and then fortunately watching guys who rent my bikes, get on the podium and winning races when in contrast, there's people making a pretty penny with good health benefits, uh, who, who, uh, who have a better lifestyle. And thankfully, uh, my partner, she made me aware of an opportunity in DC. She made a, an, a warm connection that led to some interviews. And then that led to my, me finally moving to DC and, and putting on a suit and tie and joining the Beltway Bandit space or the defense contract space. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, DC Bandits, uh, know the feeling. Definitely know the feeling. <laughs> you know, I told myself I'd never come here and here and here and here I am. Um, Okay, but th- there was a, a pivot at some point. You know, you were in the DC government contracting life, and then in 2015, you went in a direction, in a completely separate direction professionally. Yes, you went out to LA for an opportunity with We Are the Mighty, which you know is a veteran. I don't know. It's it's a veteran Buzzfeed, right? Can we call it that? Yeah, that's actually a great way. It's uh, yeah, I would say you know the largest military centric uh, digital publisher out there. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you were their, uh, You started as their director of business development, which is, I mean, from your previous background in aerono- you know, aerospace, and and I think you were in DC. You were working for the FAA, right? Correct. Um, this is this is we're talking about a completely separate trajectory: media production versus like defense contractor. Yeah, exactly. What, 
how did how did that happen and how did you get into media production because i start i mean for me it was pretty linear a combat camera media production you know uh you flight navigator defense contractor media production how did that pivot happen to, for you yeah pretty pretty major difference between literally installing a $400,000 FLIR system onto a, a onto an Austrian aircraft uh, 20 miles away from the CIA for a client, the FAA, literally being in the aircraft, installing the equipment, assessing it, testing it, Q&Aing it, uh, flying it to uh, then coming out to LA, being in the Hollywood Hills, literally right by the Hollywood sign, working with film school graduates and trying to sell both ads and media capabilities and uh, write up articles about everything going on from from the F-35 to veterans doing amazing things. And so it, yeah. it came through like much of much of my life, thankfully, it came through warm connections. It came through a good network. And uh, a close friend at the time was heavily, although she's a civilian, she was heavily involved through her position at Deloitte. Uh, she was heavily involved in the veteran space. And okay. she was part of their corporate uh, social responsibility or corporate philanthropy. And she had all these inlays in the veteran community and all this extraordinary knowledge about the veteran community. And I knew nothing about vets, veteran advocacy. I, I didn't know anything about VSOs. I don't even think I was really even part of the VA at that point, even as a, as a, as a patient, you might say, yeah. uh, I knew nothing. And she introduced me to, we are the mighty. That was fascinating to me to, to know that there are vets in a creative space. I didn't know the word creative existed as a noun to describe people. <laughs> um, sure. And I meet these guys in the Hollywood Hills in a, in a super cool environment in a super creative environment. And they're like, we're all vets. But we call each other bro, and our new weapons of choice are cameras, editing software, and then a slick pen to write you know, amazing articles or to put up podcasts. And to David Gale's credit, who had come from MTV, who had come from Viacom as a senior uh, executive producer, who had produced everything from Beavis and Butthead to um, like uh, a lot of MTV uh, road rules and more, yeah. he launched... We are the mighty, and he rapidly put together like a superstar team. And I was, I was lucky to be part of that team because I had really no, um, no qualifications to be there other than uh, proper pro, you know, program management. Did you have experience in media before that? Did you? Did you? Was it a, a passing interest? Where Where did that? You know, we're talking about a media company, a, a guy coming from a an aircraft backfield to go into a media company. What, what was the pull? Was it, did you have experience in that beforehand? I, I would say the, the, the pull was, Hey, wait, can I, you know, although it never been expressed before, there was definitely a, a marketing creative side. There was always a, I don't want to call it artistic side, but there was always a, what a left brain component to me that was never exercised in the air force. And, you know, and, when I when I saw this company and I started learning about, oh wait, they're right. You know where who is who is the voice for the veteran community, and can that voice be something more upbeat and exciting and creative? I think I rapidly, I rapidly became excited about the idea. And you're absolutely right. I had nothing in my background, nothing 
uh, that would prepare me to be a competitive applicant. And I, I thank the Mark Harpers of the world, and I thank the David Gales for being flexible and seeing my aptitude and seeing my capability and seeing my enthusiasm, but but overlooking the fact that I, I wasn't combat cameraman, even or combat camera, even though Mark Harper was or Blake Stillwell is. Um, they and a lot of the um, the video team had like I said film school uh, their film school grads or they were they were combat camera and so they put me into initially like a a more process oriented function where hey how do we how do we manage our um, how do we manage those campaigns that we land for ads for Facebook for YouTube for our podcasts how do we put processes internally that ten thousand foot view logistics based type of role. Exactly. You mentioned Blake Stillwell. Quick note, episode 204, also a former airman, and he was their former director of communication and managing editor, is also in our podcast archives. Great interview. Nice. Um, so it's it's good to hear that you guys collaborated. Oh, yeah. It's the, 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 the veteran media communities, you know, is incredibly small. And there's only so many folks who were combat camera in uniform or who, after the military get their their media chops and then join the space and Blake Stillwell has actually been one of my unofficial mentors he I'm really lucky he's part of Heroes Linked as an advisor yeah we've recently worked together and I remember when I was at We Are the Mighty seeing for the first time how a true media platform works where where the the editors would pitch our our editor in chief about articles and Blake you know Blake's got like three masters from Syracuse, and he went through the IVMF program. He was, he was my he was my TA at Syracuse. Oh, really? Yeah, for one of my one of my classes when I was going through the Syracuse program when I was in uniform. Oh my! Yeah, that's how I that's how him and I got linked up. It's pretty awesome. He's yeah. he is super talented and super accomplished. Absolutely. Um, so you were you were at We Are the Mighty for a bit, and then you went to work for a nonprofit for a small bit, and then you even spent some time with the VA. You were on VA's Los Angeles Los Angeles's uh, Community Oversight and Engagement Board. Uh, which I think is, you know, I'm, I'm still learning about a lot about the VA myself, even though I'm with the VA, it's a huge organization, right? So I think what these CO, uh, EBs were, were they're, they were in different regions. They had these advisory boards, right? Um, now were, were you a government employee or was that part-time on a board advising for the, for the COEB? Uh, the latter. And, and by the way, you're, you're a hundred percent correct about the confusion, Look, VA is enormous, serving roughly 9 million veterans with a population of 20 million plus, you know, over 300,000 employees. It's the second largest government organization, both by personnel and by budget. Enormous yeah. organization with a massive responsibility and, uh, you know, it requires an extraordinary amount of organization to uh, to make sense of it, including the CVEBs versus the VCOEB. And so, I was part of the VCOEB, I think, the, the Veterans and Community Outreach Engagement Board, we were um, we were one of the 39 facts, the federal advisory committees um, that uh, 29 facts, excuse me, FACs that are formed for ongoing major issues to serve directly uh, to make recommendations and statements to Sec VA to the Secretary of the VA. And I think there's of the other 29, there's everything from like a Vietnam Veterans um, Federal Advisory Commission. I think there are there are issues for there. There are twenty nine different um, federal advisory commissions, and we are one of them. And our whole focus was the master plan at uh, Greater Los Angeles VA 
of the 388 acres being used properly by VA for the uh, housing and wellness of the local veteran population here in LA. And that was a massive, gotcha. wasn't, is a massive uh, project. Gotcha. Still ongoing. Absolutely. So the land was donated and initially there was a veteran's home and it served like as an R&R. Uh, they built a facility and it served like as an R&R uh, space. There's actually even one that was even closer to the water uh, near Santa Monica. So, you know, uh, veterans who came home from World War One or World War Two, they would have a place to truly transition, um, have some downtime, uh, even then enjoy, in, enjoy a more peaceful uh, area. And over the course of you know, 30, 40, 50 years, that initial intention had changed to uh, monetizing it and the and leases from everything from oil companies to Hollywood uh, storing their vehicles to other nonprofits uh, using it as their base of operations. And someone finally said, wait, we are a city, you know, LA is the largest, the second largest city in the nation. We have the largest veteran population in the US. We now like the second largest um, uh, homeless population is, and I think we have one of the largest veteran homeless population in the U.S. There's a shortcoming here, and I have since been working with the VA to manage the master plan to essentially house uh, homeless veterans, provide services for them, and use those 388 acres for its initial mission. And so, so the board was the board that you, the board that you were, you were on was helping advise in that capacity for that purpose. Correct. We. We were overseen by Dr. Linda Davis at the who leads the the VA's Veterans uh, Experience, Experience Office. Office. Exactly. Yeah. And she um, she was part of our committee. They essentially assembled what I think is a super you know the super team of people who knew how to do project management, um, environmental impact studies, who knew how to build facilities for for the homeless, who knew how to build medical facilities who knew how to manage a, a, a what is a, a billion dollar project. Uh, and uh, it was about, I think, 13 of us, there were voting members, non-voting members, and essentially all we served to do was provide recommendations to Secretary of the VA to both enable the VA for funds, for program management, and to empower the local uh, Los Angeles VA to, to achieve its mission. Um, uh, not, not an easy task and it's still ongoing for sure. Absolutely. Very good. Very good. Yeah. You know, the VA it's, it's, you know, especially when I got out too, it, was, it, it, it always had a, had a negative connotation to it. And I think, I think it's fair to say that it, it's always continuously improving. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say the VA has had a lot of problems in the past, but I also think it's fair to say that it has vastly improved in the past decade or so. I'm going to, I'm going to absolutely agree. And, you know, this is what I've been wanting to say this on a, in a, in a more public forum. I've said it on LinkedIn articles and, and I voiced it where I can locally, but I, I'm, I'm super grateful for this opportunity. And I, I will say, you know, I'm not, I'm not a VA employee. I'm not, I'm no longer part, I'm no longer a part of the federal advisory committee to, for the master plan. Um, you know, I, I do, thankfully, I'm, I'm, I'm really fortunate to have connections at the VA, and I think there was extraordinary people at the VA doing extraordinary at VA doing extraordinary things. Uh, but I will say, there's an article I've I've been I have drafted in in LinkedIn. It's literally seven months old, and it's 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 uh, five five better ways to help veterans in 2020. My God, it, I started writing it in, in December, and I haven't 
even published it, but one of them is understanding the VA. And I, I don't think it's obvious that the VA, again, is, is one of the largest healthcare systems in the world. I don't think it's obvious that, that it cares for 9 million veterans. I don't think it's obvious that VA receives a DOD member who served for four years and then VA, the vet shows up on the VA's doorstep and says, oh, you're 26, 27, 28. Guess what? You now may be under our care and under our, um, our warm embrace until the day you die and beyond. And we'll provide for your medical well-being. We'll provide hopefully for your housing, for your employment, for your school, and for your family. And we'll be also the person who buries you and and plays taps uh, on when it's time to retire. And so yeah. that's not obvious. And that mission is vast. And as I as I've come to learn in strong defense of the VA, look, we the DOD doesn't the DOD doesn't ask questions before we send our troops to war. They don't say, let's do an impact study about burn pits before we launch burn pits. They don't do an impact study of saying, uh, what's it like to fly at 30,000 feet for for 10,000 hours about uh, direct exposure to the sun? What's it like to carry 80 pounds of, of gear on your back for a young Marine uh, or, a, or a young soldier to know what impact it has on the spine or knees or joints and to say that pain can only be measured by verbal statement and, and can't be physically diagnosed. And so the DOD breaks them essentially by necessity and they show up on VA and the VA says, wait, these are conditions we've never seen before. We don't even know, we don't have protocols. We don't have medical treatment necessarily for some of this stuff. We don't net, uh, We don't always know how to diagnose, treat it, or establish a protocol for our 150 plus medical facilities so that we can ensure quality assurance for, for our veterans seeking treatment for this. Uh, yeah. And so my enthusiasm for the VA goes out to, here is an organization that is tasked with the, the well-being of our veterans in all regards, but also the demand to create public-private partnerships to leverage best research, best technology, best human capital, to, to create program services, like I said, protocols, procedures, uh, tech solutions that immediately empower VA to provide that. And, and I'll just say, I have to say this, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of Deborah Schur. She is the director of VA Center for Strategic Partnerships. And she uh, wisely was picked up by SecVA, I think, um, uh, she was sought after for her success in the private sector. And she has since joined VA as an SES as a director. And she has leveraged partnerships with everyone from Verizon and T-Mobile, um, Philips, uh, Walmart, and Walgreens to help provide medical services, sometimes virtually. Telehealth, telehealth, yeah, telehealth stations. Yeah. Telehealth stations, exactly. In some of our more rural areas where... VA facilities are often a several-hour drive, or booking times are are a little bit too long for some of our veterans' needs. And so, all this is my long window of saying, the VA has an extraordinary task that requires constant, like any company, constant revision and best practices. And if anyone has any gripe with VA, what I encourage them to consider is two things: one, stop griping and start offering help, whether it's to be a, an employee to bring your 
human capital, experience, knowledge, insight to, to actually jump in the ring with VA to help, or two, to empower the VA to accomplish what it needs. I mean, the VA has to go to Congress and request funds. There's oversight, there's congressional oversight of the VA. There's executive um, branch oversight yeah. uh, at the White House of the VA. The, the VA is trying its best, but is also at the at subject to the whims of Congress, a political environment, and the White House to achieve its own mission. So I, I do defend the VA in saying, stop complaining, America, stop pointing a finger at it, and start offering solutions. And that's where I, I would love veteran advocacy to be focused on. Very good. I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, okay, so I want to move a, a little bit past what you did. What you do? What you did for VA um, and and for and for the local community that you had. Um, but in 2017, you took an entre- entrepreneurial route. You started Honor Media, and that's how I first noticed you on your LinkedIn. Uh, it's a nonprofit media company, correct? Uh, producing and publishing media for and about the veteran community. You've been doing it for about three years now. Uh, one, how's it going? Um, and two, it seemed like that model would be a for-profit. How did you find a model that would go nonprofit? Yeah, uh, excellent, excellent point about how Honor Media was formed and filed. Um, I guess to answer the first question, you know, Honor Media, we're, we're really, really fortunate, absolutely fortunate. You know, veteran advocacy still remains at the forefront of, uh, of America's priorities, and it still remains a, a significant need in the veteran community. And so... Uh, we are we are busy. We are as busy as ever, and and thankfully, you know, our mission uh, is as important as ever, which is to essentially promote the awareness of other VSOs or, or solutions in the veteran community, whether it's for employment, whether it's for medical health, mental health, the well-being. Essentially, we serve as a as a cheerleader or as a publisher, as a promoter of those who are leading in the veteran community, those who are solving problems in the veteran community, of America's philanthropy and kindness to the veteran community, and ultimately actionable actionable intel, so to speak, where someone can say, hey, how can I do or find or accomplish the following And for, for the veteran community itself? And for greater America, rather than hearing the drumbeat from the news or from movies or from documentaries, that say veterans are afflicted with post-traumatic stress or traumatic brain injury or victims of military sexual trauma or killing ourselves at 20 to 22 vets a day, depending on the study. Yeah. Instead of hearing that awareness beat every single day, what I also need them to hear is for those issues alone, there are thousands upon thousands of solutions, both by the VA and by the VSO community that's been launched as a result of it. Uh, and there are America's kindness that also provides an infinity or an infinity of solutions that address those matters. And none of that really has a publishing home. Um, I launched Honor Media because of my experience at We Are the Mighty, where I realized uh, a lot of nonprofits don't have a publishing home for their good content. Yeah. And what I realized in brief was for nonprofits to get published on a major platform, military centric, or even the CNNs, the Vices, the Voxes, um, uh, the BuzzFeeds, their good deeds go unknown. And so they're succeeding in silence. And vets don't know about solutions. And America only hears one narrative and they're not empowered to help vets. So what they say is, thank you for service. And we hear there's not being enough for you. And Honor Media is saying, wait, let's con- let's change that. And let's convert our donor dollars to favorable pieces about veterans, um, veteran solutions. Uh, so we're busy as ever, thank, thank goodness. 
So you're telling that you're telling the VSO story. You're telling you're telling the nonprofit story in the veteran space. That's that's awesome. It's very it's very good. Very good. Um, how is how is you know like I said it would you would think it be it would be a for profit. How did you find the model to go nonprofit? Yeah, that's been that's an excellent excellent question. I kind of ask myself that daily, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> but I, uh, I I was very much aware of got your six and their them safeguarding the veteran narrative, them pushing out really premium pieces via Kate Hoyt and Bill Rausch and their team and their partnerships and pushing out content about veterans who are doing extraordinary things. And so they were a nonprofit. And of course, they had their got your six certified seal for anything that was published in Hollywood that said, okay, this is this depicts veterans in the favorable light. And so I was influenced by them and of course by We Are the Mighty. And I said, you know what? I don't ever want to be a pay-to-play platform. I don't ever want to turn away a VSO doing good work who's vetted and established and pay or turn away and say, look, you can pay me a premium rate and then I'll publish your content. Uh, and so I wanted to literally say I'm in the fight as well. We have the exact same struggles of of searching for donor dollars. We are a W30 501c3 um, profit, nonprofit, excuse me. We chose to say we are more like you, VSO community, and understand your trials and tribulations. And we want to be a VSO to VSO provider. There's very few, you know. Um, yeah, I never, I've never heard of one except for this one. And uh, it's you, it's it's pretty rare, right? I think the only other that I know of really is uh, is Tim Farrell, is a retired Air Force Colonel Tim Farrell, uh, who's at Navso, and you know they are a, a VSO to VSO nonprofit essentially that helps other VSOs. Uh, generate funding and you know where do where do young VSOs go to when they need help with marketing with content creation with PR with partnerships dig it into that entrepreneurial spirit uh, you're now the LA chapter city leader of Bunker Labs and I, and I gotta be honest I haven't dug much into Bunker Labs um, I've heard of them at I heard of them at the military influencer conference uh, some of my guests have talked about them briefly what is Bunker Labs yeah. So Bunker Labs is a veteran-founded national nonprofit focused on veteran and mill spouse entrepreneurship. And Bunker Labs has been around for about five years, I believe. And through its various programs, both online and, and previously in person, it provides programs and resources to foster growth through mentorship, training, networking, and as they like to, uh, as Bunker Lab says, inspire, equip, and connect. And so it's all about helping veterans either launch their business and most spouses launch their business or grow their business uh, rapidly. Interesting. I'm sure LA chapter is pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. Absolutely. I'm sure it's probably one of the biggest ones. That's very good. Um, you know, finally, I got to say, you know, you're all about the veteran space. You're all over the veteran space, uh, uh, David. Uh, you're now the director, uh, and you've been the director for about a year of the nonprofit Heroes Linked. Uh, you you mentioned it briefly. We talked about it about about the vetties um, and all that. Talk to me about it. What what is it? It's a hundred percent online platform. There's no cost to it whatsoever. Our entire mission is to connect those who've already transitioned, or those with experience, those with corporate experience, with those who are currently serving with veterans or with their spouses or with gold star families, they can literally search their directory. It's very, very similar to LinkedIn, how profiles are laid out. It's a platform for professional and career development and uh, advisees 
who are vetted through ID.me can connect with advisors literally within minutes of signing up. They're matched based off of areas of interest and areas of expertise. They can have uh, text messages through the platform and they can have secure uh, voice calls through the platform for everything from resume review to how to be a competitive applicant to what other uh, maybe resources an advisor has used to, to gain a stronger foothold in corporate America to how to be promoted faster. Um, the list goes on and on about how it can be used for career and professional success. Um, I'm an advisor on the platform as well. And so the calls I've had have varied from, hey, I'm launching a business. How do I find fitting people to, to join my team? To, hey, I'm already a government employee. How can I be promoted within my own org? To, hey, uh, I want to go work uh, overseas. What's the best way of doing that? Uh, to, hey, man, uh, I'm not doing so well and I'm having a hard time getting a job and I'm kind of at wit's end. What's up? And I have to, you know, we put on our hats of our, of our assist training and, and, and assess suicide, assess suicide interest and ideation and see what, what VSOs and resources we can route them to. So it's literally an open ended call that's focused on their, their career development, their professional development, and their well-being. And our, and our advisors, our mentors are, uh, they don't, they, they can be veterans. They can, they can be anyone. We, we err on the more receptive side to advisors. We know that, uh, insight and advice can come from anyone. It can come from another advisee. It can come from another advisor. We don't want to shun that opportunity for insight to be shared. Um, and we, we, open our advisor ranks, including to um, Marine veterans and, and, and Born the Battle <laughs> podcast hosts, who are very, very fortunate to have you as an advisor, um, and Blake Stillwell, and, and a few others in the community. We're very, very grateful to you. And yep. as you know, uh, we just want, we know there are questions that can be answered simply, and we know that we have people who've been out for a few years might have that, quote, upperclassmen or that experience uh, that might be absolutely key and critical to to someone who's in transition or someone who's maybe just a few years behind us professionally. And and I'll say this as the last thing about Heroes Linked uh, as a bullet point. You know, the platform was initially conceived to help transitioning veterans and mill spouses. I want to propose that the platform is much more than that. The platform can be for any veteran uh, at any stage in their in their career. Now, I've been out for, my God, what, 12, 13 years I'm only three years into my own nonprofit, but I know there are nonprofit leaders on that platform who have raised millions upon millions of dollars for theirs, and that it, it behooves me to have a conversation with them and say, how did you select your board? How are you doing your fundraiser events? What is that relationship like between you as executive director and founder and your own board? What's it like for salary negotiation? How do you best deal with your employees? And when's best to hire? When's best to fire? Hey, how do you ensure that your brand is on um, is culturally aware of what's going on uh, in our society while still pushing your mission forward. Yeah. So I would be foolish not to leverage my own platform, our, our Heroes Link platform, for my own success. So the men, so, so the mentor can can become the mentee. Gotcha. Exactly. I know you. I know, I know you've been trying to get me to sign on as a mentor. It's been and I, I'm sorry, man. It's been crazy lately. I've got to slow my roll, uh, but with COVID and some personal issues taking my time, but I definitely do want to start giving back again. So uh, uh, absolutely. Um, so I, I, I hear I hear the recruiting effort and I'm and I'm there, dude. Well, I'm look there. if you 
if you can't do that, maybe you could do something good. Like, you know, maybe like host 205 podcasts for the country and, and be one of the top 30, <laughs> top 30 podcasts on iTunes overall. Why don't you just do that instead and we'll call uh, it even. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, I definitely, I definitely, um, definitely want to give back my time. Um, David, give me a skill or a veteran life hack, something that you've learned in service that you carry with you today. Uh, yeah, I'll say this. Um, the most important lesson that I've had to implement and I've had to learn and the most important thing that both the Air Force Believe It or Not taught me and business taught me uh, is be cool. Literally. I, I think both in Hollywood and in the military, um, professionalism matters, performance matters, aptitude matters, but none of that is a factor in if someone isn't cool to work with or is, a, is, a, is, is even hired as a colleague. And cool doesn't have to mean... Uh, goose aviator shades while popping gum with a low, with a, you know, it doesn't have to mean wearing hipster boots and having a slick beard. Cool just means um, being someone that we want to work with, um, someone that's cool enough that we're willing to share our network with or introduce others to. Uh, that's, I'd say that's number one thing. And actually, I, um, I've had my own struggles with that because coming from the Air Force, I thought, I thought, performance prevails. I thought that was the number one factor, especially when life is at stake. Uh, I, and think, I think, I think military, I think military in general, it will, 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 we would say that that's, we would think that absolutely. Yeah. Mission first. It was never, it was never, you know, of course, integrity for service for self excellence and all we do, the Air Force core values. But I think adapting that is, is, um, is be cool. And that's increasingly becoming a, a challenge to find in, in our, colleagues and but it's it's like the number one criteria i use for bringing folks on to honor media or in selecting folks for for bunker labs or in in seeking people to be part of of heroes link and so i would lead with that be cool period tracking very good um is there a better nonprofit or an individual who you have worked with who's cool um or who who you've had an experience with with whom you'd like to mention yeah, I would say so very briefly, honor media, you know, like so we convert donor dollars into to favorable content about the veteran community, actionable content, but we also serve as a service provider, uh, like NPR, like PBS. We do sell services as a nonprofit, which is unique. Um, and we've been really fortunate to work with about 15 other VSOs. And I will say they're all senior to me in experience and in wisdom and in programs. And Melissa Washington at Women's Veterans Alliance. Antoinette Balta, uh, a lawyer herself who founded and leads Veterans Legal Institute, helping vets with legal matters. Um, Bob Kirkshian at, at Bob Hope USO at LA, who's still serving as a Navy reservist. Uh, Todd Connor, who founded said Bunker Labs. Um, of course, I've, I've, I've been fanboying on Jake Wood of Team Rubicon for years. Uh, they, they, we haven't had an official uh, relationship, but I've been a, a, gray, a gray shirt. But there are nonprofits out there who I've worked with, uh, who have, have uh, shared their mission through Honor Media, who have produced content for Jazz Booth, Major Jazz Booth with Final Salute and Miss, um, uh, and Miss, Miss Veteran. Uh, I just, uh, you know, there are people doing amazing things in the veteran community and literally their mission is a, is a hard won daily battle and their leadership is exactly what we need and exactly what I admire. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever had that many in a minute and a half, man. You, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> Definitely impressed. Um, David, uh, last question, brother. Is there anything else that I might have missed 
or that I didn't ask that you, that you'd like to share? Yeah, I, I would just say this. This is, I guess, you know, given me being in the veteran space, to, to fellow veterans or to those in, I would. My only bit of advice besides be cool is, look, do me a favor before you ever beat the drum of need or necessity. Search. I know it's not easy. I absolutely know it's not easy uh, to search for a solution, but it's out there. And I think what we need as a community is there. I don't think we need to reinvent daily uh, the wheel. I think uh, our leadership and our efforts can be best applied to existing orgs or government organizations, and we can apply our talents there to make things better. And so my charge to our fellow veterans is, uh, is lead. Lead and solve problems, period. Uh, that was a good conversation. I want to thank David for reaching out and taking the time to talk with us here at Born the Battle. For more information on David, you can go to heroeslinked.com forward slash about and scroll down and see his bio. Our Born the Battle Veteran of the Week comes by the way of our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital team recognizes a veteran for their service on all of our social media accounts and on blogs.va.gov. You can send in your own nomination by sending in a photo and a quick write-up by emailing newmedia at va.gov. This particular Veteran of the Day was submitted by VA's Director of Emergency Medicine, who you will hear in a bonus COVID update of Born the Battle this week. Barton Buddy Kessler was born on October 14, 1945. He volunteered for service during the Vietnam War and served four years on active duty and two years on reserve from March of 1964 to 1970. Kessler went to Great Lakes Naval Training Center in Illinois for boot camp and then transferred to the Naval Auxiliary Air Training Center in Meridian, Mississippi. Kessler was then attached in June of 64 to a unit that was working with the FBI and CIA. He supported the hunt for three missing voting rights activists, Andrew Goodman, Michael Schwerner of New York City, and James Cheney. Following the discovery of their bodies, this event came to be known as the Freedom Summer Murders and the Mississippi Burning Murders, and their names are now linked to the Civil Rights Movement. Kessler then served with the military sea transportation in Oakland, California. This unit, which served on the USS General Edwin Patrick, transported troops to Vietnam. The transport ship was a victory ship, originally bringing troops home from World War II. Over the next four years, Kessler befriended thousands of young men and women on their way to the battlefields of Vietnam, lifting their spirits with his words of compassion, encouragement, and his good humor. It was during this time that Kessler determined he would make medicine his life's career. Kessler also served aboard the USS General William Weigel, which also transported troops from all branches of service bound for Vietnam. The ship also transported merchant marines and the Republic of Korea troops allied with the U.S., during this time, Kessler's travels brought him to many ports, including Korea, Japan, and Vietnam. Kessler, a Philadelphia native, returned home in March of 68 and began studies at the Pennsylvania College of Podiatric Medicine. In 1971, he married his wife, Audrey, and he is the father of three children, Lene, Candace, and Chad. Kessler has held leadership positions in the Jewish War Veterans of the USA and is also a member of the Vietnam Veterans of America. 
Retired from practice in 2015, Kessler, a 100% service-connected veteran, receives his health care at the Durham VA Medical Center. Navy veteran Barton Buddy Kessler. Thank you for your service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you would like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcast, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app, note a phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than myself to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast nor any media products or services they may provide. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care.